Climate Law Matters. Interview with Kate Tandy. Hello, listener, and welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters, in which we explore the legal developments across different sectors to address the key issue of climate change. I am Steph David, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in environmental and climate change cases. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Kate Tandy, Head of Litigation and Casework at the Office for Environmental Protection, otherwise known as the OEP. Kate, welcome to the show. To start, what exactly is the OEP? Hi, Steph. Thank you. Great to be here. Yes, the OEP, we're an independent, non-departmental public body. We're established under the Environment Act 2021 in November 2021. And we're part of the new environmental governance arrangement introduced by the Environment Act following the UK's departure from the EU. Our mission is to protect and improve the environment by holding government and other public bodies to account. And our work covers England and Northern Ireland, as well as reserve matters that fall within our remit. We've got four main functions, which I'll just cover briefly, and then I think we'll probably talk about some of them in more detail later. But the four main functions are, firstly, scrutinising the government's environmental improvement plans and targets. So under the Environment Act, there's a requirement for the government to set environmental improvement plans to improve the natural environment, and also to set long-term targets for the environment. And we have a role in monitoring and reporting on the government's progress against that plan and target. We published our first statutory report earlier this year. Secondly, we have a role in scrutinising environmental law more broadly. So we have a role to monitor the implementation of environmental law and we can report on those matters. We've got a couple of reports in train that I'll talk about a bit later. Thirdly, we can advise government regarding proposed changes to environmental law. And if we're requested to, we can also advise on other matters relating to the natural environment. For proposed changes to the law, we can advise on our own volition or in response to request. And then if government ministers want to ask for our advice on anything else to do with the natural environment, then we can provide that as well. And then finally, we have an enforcement function. So we can receive complaints And then we can investigate suspected serious failures to comply with environmental law by public authorities. There's a bespoke enforcement process in the Environment Act that's just for the OEP. And ultimately, in the most serious cases where we've not been able to reach resolution earlier, we can take public authorities to court under a process called environmental review, which is essentially a special version of judicial review. So it's based on judicial review principles. And I think then it's just worth noting in terms of our remit that environmental law is specifically defined in the Environment Act as any legislative provision to the extent that it's mainly concerned with environmental protection and excluding certain matters such as national security and taxation resources type legislation. So hopefully that's a helpful overview of what the OEP is. Absolutely. Very comprehensive. Thanks, Kate. And just out of curiosity, what's your background and how did you come to this role? Yeah, so I previously was the chief legal advisor at the National Farmers Union, where I worked for many years. And while I was there, I was obviously working on a lot of environmental law issues with a particular focus on the agriculture industry. And I was fortunate enough to be involved in a number of high profile judicial review cases relating to agriculture. And that really ignited my interest in public and environmental law and how they work together. So 
while the environment bill, as it was then, was going through Parliament, I was following its progress and I thought, oh, the Office for Environmental Protection looks like an interesting development. And it was just a really great opportunity to be involved in a new organisation with a mission to protect and improve the environment. And I think there's a time when that happened, we couldn't be more needed with what's going on with the climate and biodiversity crisis. It was just a great opportunity to get involved at the outset with a new organisation, really. Well, you mentioned just then the kind of various crises that we are facing. I mean, as you say, there are so many challenges from the biodiversity decline to poor air quality to sewage and fresh and coastal waters, just to name a few examples. How does the OEP go about prioritising its resources and efforts? Yeah, you've hit there on one of our biggest challenges. We are a small strategic organisation. We've got a huge remit. There's so much we could do and there's so much that needs to be done. So we've given it a lot of thought really as an organisation as we were developing as to how can we really make sure that what we do makes the biggest difference. And so that's our guiding light really when we're making decisions about prioritisation and where we put our efforts, which is where can we make the biggest difference to environmental protection and improvement of the environment. And one of the points that we particularly consider and this is set out in our strategy and enforcement policy, which was published last June, is that we'll look to consider all of our functions in relation to any particular issue to decide which one might have the biggest impact. So I think that's something that is a positive about being a small organisation is we're very flexible across our different functions. If something comes in and it comes in through maybe our enforcement function as a complaint, but then we look at it, perhaps it's not actually a failure to comply with environmental law that's indicated, but there might actually be some issue with the design of the law or how it's being implemented, then we can look at that under our monitoring environmental law function. Broadly, we have four strategic objectives. The first is to achieve sustained environmental improvement. Second is to achieve better environmental law that is better implemented. Thirdly, to improve compliance with environmental law. And then the final one is organisational excellence and influence. So if we're not an excellent organisation, then people won't listen to what we have to say. So as I mentioned, our strategy was published last June and we set out there that we'll prioritise based on four principles. The first is by outcome and across our functions. So again, where will we make the most difference? And secondly, we'll be supported by evidence available at the time. And I think that's really important. We're an evidence-based organisation and we'll look at what's available. And then if things change, we can come back to it at a later date. And we go through our prioritisation by asking ourselves four main questions. The first one is how large an effect could our action have? Secondly, how likely is our ability to have that effect? So are we the best place to do it or is there somebody else who's already doing it? Those kind of questions come in there. Thirdly is what is the strategic fit? Again, how does this fit in with the other work that we're already doing? Perhaps what other, particularly maybe other public authorities are doing? And then finally, what's our capacity and capability to deliver that effect? And then the kind of final principle that we work on is we'll be transparent about the matters we prioritise. We've recently, along those lines, to do enhanced transparency, we've recently published our corporate plan, which sets out our priorities for the next three years. And we've got a particular focus on what we're planning to do in the next year, so up until March 2024. And those key priorities, we've got three key priorities, which are nature recovery, water quality and effective governance. So I think the effective governance point there is really to say none of this works unless actually what is supposed to be done is being done. 
by everybody in the system. So we do have a particular focus on that. And then we've got emerging work areas coming up over the next couple of years on soil, managing waste and improving nature at sea. So those are the issues that we've, having gone through that prioritisation process, we've judged those to be most in need of attention at this time. We'll also consider other matters as they arise. So that's our corporate priorities over the next three years. But in certainly in the context of our enforcement function, where we might receive complaints, we would obviously look at those and they may be aligned with those issues or they may bring up other important issues that we haven't taken into account yet. Because in relation to our enforcement functions, we do have some other factors that we have to have regard to when we're deciding whether we want to take enforcement action, such as whether there's national implications, whether the conduct is ongoing or recurrent, whether there's serious damage caused to the environment, and whether the issue raises points of environmental law of general public importance. So that's the kind of things that we'll look at for our enforcement function. So you spent some time there kind of laying out functions and tools in the armory to exercise those functions. So one of those tools is the power to intervene in judicial review claims. And there was a lot of coverage earlier in the year about your intervention in the Supreme Court case of Finch. I think the hearing took place on the 21st and 22nd of June. The development under consideration in that case was the retention and extension of two hydrocarbon wells and the drilling of four new wells and water reinjection well. The wells would be used for the commercial production of oil and gas. As the listener will no doubt know, the case is important in the context of fossil fuel development because it concerned the meaning of and approach to indirect effects as part of an environmental impact assessment. In particular, whether the EIA should assess the environmental impact of the greenhouse gas emissions from the use of the fuel, otherwise known as the scope three emissions. So bearing in mind what you said earlier about your strategy and criteria, why did the OEP decide to intervene in that particular case? It was a really interesting case to be involved in. And The primary reason that we were involved in that is, as you mentioned there, the fact that it would have a potentially wider impact. So certainly a wider impact on any future fossil fuel extraction projects, but potentially actually a wider impact as to how indirect effects are assessed properly for all EIA projects. So in that case, the purpose of our intervention was to highlight the importance of clarity in the law to promote good environmental decision-making. So our focus there was really to say, in order to make the best decisions, you need to have all of the available information. It's not for us to say what those decisions should be, and that's not what EIA seeks to do. But in order to have that clarity and understand how these decisions should be made. So although the case relates to the individual decision that you mentioned, because it's about the correct interpretation of EIA legislation, I think that's one of the main reasons that we chose to intervene. And also we recognised and we did in our submissions that this is an area of potential reform under the levelling up and regeneration bill that's currently going through Parliament. And we certainly think that it's important to understand the full extent and nature of existing legislation in order to ensure that reforms really deliver for the environment. So I think even if the EIA, as we know it, is changed, it's important that we understand what it means so that we can ensure that either improvements or at least same level of environmental protection is maintained if we were to move to a new regime. And so while the appeal itself focuses on downstream greenhouse gas emissions and scope three emissions, we do hope that the Supreme Court 
might take this opportunity to develop principles for determining the proper approach to the assessment of indirect effects for EIA more broadly. What was the OEP's position in that case? I mean, what did you say the principled approach should look like? So in that case, we submitted that contrary to the Court of Appeals judgment, that we said that it was incorrect to suggest that what is an indirect effect is simply a matter for planning judgment. And we said that the correct approach should be that the meaning of the words is a matter of law. And then the application to individual cases would then be a matter of fact or planning judgment where appropriate, for example, if effect is likely or significant, would clearly be something that would need to be considered by that planning decision maker. We didn't take sides between the parties. We didn't make submissions on the underlying facts of the appeal. So our submissions highlighted the concern that previous court decisions in the High Court and the Court of Appeal left the law in this area in an uncertain position. And we thought that could have potentially adverse effects on the sound decision making that I mentioned earlier, which could risk undermining environmental protection and improvement. And in terms of specifically what we said, and I should mention we have published our written submissions on our website. So if anyone wants to read in more detail, because they are very detailed submissions, then please head over to our website to have a look. But we basically, in summary, proposed that the following principles could be applied to whether something is an indirect effect. One, the purported effect should be identified, and then it should be considered whether that effect can sensibly be assessed by EAA as an indirect effect of the project in the sense that the project contributes in some identifiable and sufficiently certain way that effect. So then we looked at applying the wording of the directive, the EIA directive and the regulations. We submitted that there are a number of matters which as a matter of law, shouldn't be taken by themselves to mean that a purported effect is not an indirect effect. So those were things like the fact that the purported effect will occur at a different time and in a different location to the project is not of itself a reason why it's not an indirect effect. And I think the point we were making there is the nature of environmental effect is that they can be spatially dissociated from their source and they might be transboundary or global in nature. The fact that the applicant for the project won't have control over the later activities which may contribute to the effect is also not a reason that it's not an indirect effect. And the fact that there might be further stages, such as processing of the outputs of the project, whether that's waste or products. And then finally, the fact that there may be later stages or where EIA might take place. So obviously in this context, there could be later projects that where EIA takes place. We don't consider that to be determinative of whether something is an indirect effect of the extant project. And we think that would be contrary to the objective that EIA should take place at the earliest possible stage. So I think that sort of summarises broadly what we were saying. So we've invited the Supreme Court to kind of take those principles on board and come up with some principles that could be applied more broadly to indirect effects. Sounds like it would be incredibly helpful. Let's watch this space and see when the Supreme Court finally hands down their decision. So picking up one of the points that you mentioned earlier, so you're talking about the kind of investigatory function, the enforcement function. I mean, linked to that, you talked about complaints as well. Who can make a complaint to the OEP and how are they addressed? Anyone can make a complaint to the OEP other than a public authority. So in the Act, it sets out that we can't accept complaints about public authorities from other public authorities. But other than that, anyone is able to make a complaint if they think that a public authority might have failed to comply with environmental law. And I think 
one of the kind of challenges we have is being able to explain what that means, certainly to members of the public, because what we're talking about there is failures to comply in a public law sense. So we're talking about public law and lawfulness, whether they've unlawfully failed to act or acted. And I think that is something that's quite a difficult thing to get across to people. So we've done a lot of work on our website to try and explain that. And then, but if people think that a public authority is not complying with environmental law, that's the way in to us. And the first thing is that they'll need to have exhausted the public authority's own complaints process, or you can complain to the OEP. And then the complaints need to be submitted within a year of the alleged failure or three months from the public authority's response to the complaint, whichever is later of those two times. And I think it's important to know when we're talking about our complaints process that they are complaints, but it's not a process of individual dispute resolution that we're undertaking here. So we're not like an ombudsman, for example, where we seek to resolve your specific complaint with the specific public authority. We're looking more broadly at the underlying potential failure to comply with the law. So we assess the complaints to make sure they first of all meet those initial eligibility criteria that I've just mentioned. And then we look at whether there's an indication of a failure to comply with environmental law. And we can only look at cases where the potential failure is serious. So we also need to assess whether we think it's serious. In our enforcement policy, we've set out a number of factors, but it will be things like those points that I mentioned earlier, the general public importance, does it have national implications? Is it causing serious damage to the environment? Is there recurring conduct? Those kind of issues would factor into whether we consider it to be serious. And then the next stage would be if we do think there's an indication of a serious failure to comply, then we'll put the through our prioritisation criteria again. Given our size and our remit, we won't be able to act on every complaint, even where there is an indication of a serious failure. So we'll need to have a look at where it's best placed to address that. But I think it's also important to note that any information we receive from complaints is really valuable to us. So even if we're not able to act on a particular complaint at that time, we keep all of that information. And it may be that a number of smaller complaints that perhaps we haven't assessed as serious. When If there's an accumulation, you could say, well, actually, this is now looking like there is a serious issue. So I would certainly encourage people to send information into us via complaints if they, if they do think there's issues. So once we've gone through that process of assessing the complaints, we may seek to resolve some issues with public authorities. It's certainly our intention to work to resolve areas of non-compliance through cooperation, dialogue, agreement with public authorities. But where that's not possible, or it might be that we do this in the course of investigation, we can investigate and then we can go through our bespoke enforcement process. So that includes serving information notices, public authorities, which the clue is in the title there, of obtaining specific information from them in relation to the alleged failure. And then we can issue decision notices if we consider that there is a failure and we can say this is what we think the failure is and this is the steps we think you should take public authority to rectify it. And then if that still doesn't resolve the issue, that's at the point at which we might consider taking public authorities to court under our environmental review process. But I think we do consider that going to court will be a last resort and something we would not be doing that regularly because I'd hope that we're able to have that role of reaching agreement about what the law is, but equally in a similar way to what we did with Finch, there's also probably many areas of law where there's genuine uncertainty. And it might be that we can use our functions to try and achieve clarity in the law in certain areas as well.
So from what you just said, it sounds like your complaints function has a sort of dual objective. The first one, as you said, intelligence gathering, kind of identifying patterns across areas or with particular public authorities. And the second one, obviously, being, say, more of a kind of accountability and enforcement objective. Yes, I think that's a fair assessment. Just then tying this background to, since the podcast is about climate law in, in particular, what role do you see the OEP playing specifically in addressing climate change going forward? That's a good question. And it's something we've been thinking about and talking about because we have a very specific remit. But I think what will be interesting is to see, obviously, the Climate Change Committee is the main public authority that's responsible for monitoring government's progress towards achieving its climate change ambitions. But I think as we go through and we understand more about climate change and how it connects to those other areas. So how the biodiversity crisis and the climate change crisis actually connect and how climate change is affecting those other areas that we are primarily responsible for. I think it will inevitably come into a lot of our work. In terms of specifically, we can take enforcement action against anything to do with climate change. So the Climate Change Committee does not have an enforcement function. So we can do that. And where we do that, we would look to work with the Climate Change Committee. And then it's worth noting that in terms of our scrutiny and reporting functions, again, we can look at things like climate change adaptation, but there are specific areas that are within the role of the Climate Change Committee that we're prohibited from reporting on. So the Act sets out, it's mostly around the net zero target setting of carbon budgets, those things which fit squarely within the CCC's role. But yeah, we do consider that we will have a role Although, as I mentioned earlier, what our current priorities are, climate change in and of itself is not a current priority for the OEP. It's clearly relevant to all of those priority areas. And I think it's something that we will be looking at a lot more in our progress against the EIP, the Environmental Improvement Progress Report that we do, which is to look at the climate change adaptation against those goals that are in the Environmental Improvement. And just pick up on one point there. So you mentioned the CCC. How practically do you manage that relationship with the CCC? I think it's worth recognising that the Environment Act itself recognised that there could have been potential overlap between our work and that of the CCC. And so we are required under the Act to develop a memorandum of understanding, which we've done, and that's on our website. And so far it's working really well. We have a good relationship with the CCC it's mostly around information exchange and trying to build our understanding of where what we're doing may be of interest to the CCC and vice versa. And so they have a very specific remit under the Climate Change Act 2008 to advise and report on climate change mitigation and adaptation. And we have a role to scrutinise government's progress towards improving the natural environment, which is wider than just climate change. But there's clearly some overlap there. So we have regular meetings with the CCC, both at operational and more senior level, to try and understand how we can best work together. And I think that's in development, but it's working well for now. And just in terms of then the enforcement action point, because you said that's a kind of key difference between the OEP's role and the CCC's role. You mentioned before that the OEP wouldn't necessarily be able to take enforcement action in relation to breaches of the Climate Change Act when they relate to net zero and the carbon budgets. I know it also mentions in the MOU that you may be able to take action in respect of greenhouse gas emissions. Just out of curiosity, how would you envisage that would work? Yeah, just to clarify on the carbon budgets and net zero, 
We could take enforcement action. We can't report on it under our monitoring function, but we could, if there was alleged failures to comply, we could look at taking enforcement action. And then in particular, if we were to serve an information notice to a public authority relating to greenhouse gas emissions, we, under the Act, we have to tell the Climate Change Committee about that. But I think more broadly, the way that we envisage it working and certainly in relation to the Finch case, because it was connected, we did speak to the Climate Change Committee you know, ahead of that intervention. We would envisage that kind of role so that we can understand if they have information that's relevant and also to keep them updated as to what we're doing and ensure that we're working together in terms of where our objectives are aligned. I think that's probably how we envisage it working, making sure that the CCC is aware of cases of suspected non-compliance within its areas of interest. And then it may also factor in, as I mentioned earlier, when we're looking at our prioritisation, one of the questions is, are we the best place to do this? What are other people doing? And it may well be that is where we have a stronger role in future in relation to specifically climate change because of the fact that we do have that enforcement function where the CCC doesn't. So I think it's a bit of a case of watch this space, but we envisage that we would work quite closely with them. And just taking a step back, what do you see as the greatest legal barrier to addressing climate change or the most important legal development? Probably the most important developments and the most important and the greatest challenges are connected. So I think the development of the Climate Change Act the introduction of the Climate Change Act. And now we've just recently also got a Climate Change Act in Northern Ireland, which is very exciting a development as well. I think those acts being brought in and then subsequently the Environment Act represent the most important legal development. I think the recognition that this is something that's really serious and we need to take action on, you know, having that in primary legislation is really powerful. And I think that's something that's really important. But I think the greatest challenge then, which is what we're seeing now, is the implementation and delivery of those laudable ambitions that are set out in those pieces of legislation. So whether it's the net zero target or the long-term environment act targets, they are much needed and they are ambitious. And I think what we're seeing now is it's relatively straightforward to set those ambitions but we need to see more on delivery how are we going to achieve those and what's the delivery mechanisms and i think that brings in quite a lot of legal questions in terms of will there need to be new legislative schemes brought out to deliver those or are they more policy based and where's the interaction but yeah i think overall delivery is where the action really needs to be now that we've done the work of setting those ambitions. I really hope, I think, the existence of organisations like the Climate Change Committee and now the OEP with our scrutiny and enforcement powers and our ability to contribute to the wider natural environment in addition to just climate change, I hope that does provide a significant opportunity for the delivery of better law that's better implemented in the future. Thank you very much for your time, Kate. Thank you. Thank you.